Hello and welcome to the Health Interpreter Series, an initiative to cover topics to better understand and engage with health policy and enable communities to get better access to health services across rural Australia. Before we start, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we work and live. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to the first of our Health Interpreter series. We're talking about health literacy, why it's important and who owns health. And to help us through that is Richard Colbrand, CEO of the New South Wales Rural Doctors Network. Richard, welcome. Thanks, Jeremy, and thanks for acknowledging country there too. I think any conversation in Australia about rural health really has to understand the history of Australia and the needs that we have to have to support our Aboriginal friends and families. Great. Before we start, I'd like to know a bit about the person that we're talking with and what brings you to to the microphone as an expert in rural health, because you are. You are essentially one of Australia's leading uh, health professionals. Where did you start your journey on rural health? I love getting set up for yeah, something. Exactly. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> Good on you, mate. Uh, well, I don't know if I'm one of the leading people, but I'm absolutely committed. So I've been working in in health for about 20 years, but particularly in the not-for-profit health space. So I don't have a health background. I'm actually a PE teacher by trade but I've been able to find my way into working with community and health and then found my way to being the CEO of RDN, which has been a huge privilege, giving me incredible insights and learnings about how the system works. But I guess my ultimate driver is actually about community and I guess that's one of the topics of today to think about how does health and community really connect, particularly when you're thinking about rural Australia. And so before we start, it's probably a good idea because most of our listeners won't know who the Rural Doctors Network of New South Wales are. So uh, who are they and and how do they end up in this space? Great, yeah. So I took over from the founding chief executive of the Rural Doctors Network, Dr. Ian Cameron, and this year the charity turns 35. So uh, it was a pretty significant thing to take over from the founder after he retired 27 or 28 years. And what I've come to learn about the Rural Doctors Network is back in the mid-80s, there were significant issues in relation to the way the health system was developing at that time. And we had a situation where the industry that employs me today, which is the rural health industry, actually didn't exist. So you had people doing work, but as an industry, it wasn't really solid. And in 1987, the New South Wales doctors went on strike. The rural doctors went on strike. So the way it's been told to me is that they were being paid the same amount as uh, the janitors and the cleaners, the transport people, the administrators, uh, to deliver babies at midnight. And it just got to the point where it was breaking. The system was breaking and the doctors went on strike in 87. And so out of that strike, I think it led to a number of things nationally around pay agreements, industrial awards and all the rest. And then one of the things the New South Wales government also did was set aside some funding to support the attraction, recruitment and retention of rural doctors for rural New South Wales. That money actually ended up becoming the charity called New South Wales Rural Doctors Network. So over the 35 years, RDN's done a huge amount of work around thinking about how to build and support not just the doctors, not just the medical people, but also all of the health professions in rural New South Wales so that we can build and sustain a viable health system for our remote and rural communities. And one of the things that you've been pushing is that communities need to have far more say around the health and the access to health in their communities and be active in it. And this is, this is one of the reasons for this mm. series. So tell us, first of all, let's start this journey what does health literacy mean and why is it important for communities to know? So in terms of the idea of what is community or why to be thinking about community at the centre, 
is we do have challenges, and I'm sure you're going to ask me about some of those challenges in our system in Australia. But the reality is we've actually got a very good health system. We've got some of the best care, some of the greatest innovation happening globally, but things are tough. And what tends to happen in health, it is so big. It's way bigger than I can comprehend. And I think some of the people working in the health system do incredible work you know, in billion-dollar businesses. But when you actually come into a community and you look at what's actually happening, you can just tell how stretched it is and how almost how impossible it is to create a change and to ensure at the highest level that every person who walks in the door of a health system, whether it's a hospital, a GP practice, a physio's practice, uh, radiography, whatever it is, we've got to make sure that those people have the best possible care at the right time at the right place. And for me, that's the motivation I've gotten talking about things like health system literacy is to help our communities understand what they should be expecting, that it actually is okay to have a high expectation, that there's human rights issues involved in this and that they need to not only ask, they need to demand because without that, you actually can't guarantee for your people in your own communities that you're going to get the best care. And it's also important, is it not, to understand what you need because what I find is that a lot of communities think they just need a GP, they just need a pharmacist, but there's far more to it and also where you go to get that answered. Okay, so this is a really important point. And so you, the thing that really resonated for me there is when you said, people say, just get me a doctor. And what, one of the most amazing things I've learned in WIS job, I work for an organisation called the Rural Doctors Network. What I've been coached and trained here by the sages, we call them, is that actually the right answer is often not get me a doctor. Because the medical workforce, the whole pressures on the medical workforce, the change of the medical workforce, the change of technologies mean quite often it isn't a doctor that solves the problem that a particular community needs. Now, in no way are we saying doctors aren't important and all that sort of stuff. It's not about that. But when you look at the need of a town or the need of a group of people inside a town, quite often we fall back to get us a doctor. But what people don't always understand, and I put my hand up here, I didn't know this at the start either, there are different type of doctors. So sometimes a doctor is a specialist in a certain things. Sometimes they're a GP who's specialising in certain things. So you've actually got to find the right doctor who's been trained and developed and suited, shovel-ready, if you like, for the right environment they're about to walk into, that they're culturally prepared so they understand the needs of local community, uh, its population type, all that sort of thing. And it is not as easy as just get us a doctor. And so we always try when we're talking to communities to have them think through what exactly do they want from their health system and then we go through a process of thinking through how do you design that response and then you think about what workforce do we need. And uh, it's complicated work, but geez, it's fun. In the current situation, who looks after that for the communities at the moment? So I'm still challenged by this question. You can probably already tell by the tone of my voice, I'm a really big believer in community. Uh, and so I've been challenging myself for the seven years I've been in this job and using my experiences from the 15 plus years before then, trying to work out who owns this thing this big beast of a thing called health. And sometimes I look at the health minister federally or in the States. Sometimes I look at the colleges who are the medical colleges. Sometimes I look at groups of organisations that come together to form alliances and the rest. But everywhere I go, I can't actually find who owns something. People are funded. So often you think about who's got the money. You know, when you do business, so who's got the money, follow the money tree. But in health, it doesn't always work that way. The people who've got the money often have the power. doesn't mean that they're actually able to. They might have the intent to, but they might not be able to influence the change that even they're looking to do. So the only answer I've got is community. When you think about who owns health and you go town by town by town, they're the people, we're the people 
who actually understand what we need. We're the people who can make it happen because we've actually got the power. We don't always have the money, but we've got the power. And um, you know, I'm very keen to speak more about that if you think it's of interest, but I really, really like having community at the centre and, and letting community know that they have the power to own their own health outcome. Well, talk more because that's what this whole series is about, is empowering communities to take control of and actually influence the health outcomes for their citizens. So whether it be the local government, whether it be local businesses, uh, that's what you mean about community? Is yeah, that is that yeah. what you're talking about? Yes, yeah, that's right. So so the way I frame this when I'm driving around the state and thinking about things is what does that mean? How do you bring that to play? And the best I've come up with so far is think about access. So how do you think about and create and sustain access to care? Whether you're in a town of 13 people or you're in a town of 5,000 people, if you have access thinking about that, you actually come up with a whole host of things that need to be dealt with, the problem and the solutions. And another aspect too that people really need to be thinking about, particularly if they're leaders of local communities, is that the health system's so big that it just says the word health. So it's really easy to say health or rural health. But actually what we really need to do is think about the fact that services and the service provision methods in remote Australia are very, very different to what's needed in rural Australia very, very different to what's needed in regional Australia and very, very different to what's needed in outer metro. And so there's this big thing about if we say a word like we're the Minister of Regional Health, what does that actually really mean? Or the Minister of Rural Health, what does that really mean? And I like the idea of chunking it up because the differences are very, very stark and we all run into risk when we think about just trying to be um, bland or, or roll out the same thing, the cookie cutter approach. So one of the things that comes up here is then you start to think about access. And the way that I've been able to work with some of the people, my colleagues across the country, is we sort of see six or seven pillars of access. So when you're in a community and you're thinking about, right, what's really going to matter here, uh, in no particular order, and some of this is of the world according to Richard, but it's the idea of, first of all, uh, what's the service model that we're going to use? So if we got in some towns, there's, a, there's three physios within 100 kilometres of a town, and in some towns, there's not a physio within 600 kilometres. So really understanding the population need and the service model that's going to work for a particular town, a bit like the comment about just get me a doctor, like it's not quite, you've really got to understand what's going to work for your town. The other is workforce, and workforce comes up in any conversation and might explore that more later. It's very important to have the community engaged and cohesive. So there's a difference between people being interested and engaged. Engaged for me means that you're deeply and authentically diving into what's going on, that you're a contributor, that you're a participant, you're proactive, and that's very important, as I was sort of alluding to earlier. The idea of tailoring to local need for me just comes up. It's, I, I think I underestimated that in my earlier in my career, so really understanding particular needs within communities. When I can think of examples in rural New South Wales where a hospital has been placed on the other side of the creek, which means during floods we can't get to the hospital. I mean, who designed this stuff? Like it's just, you think all these sorts of things. So it's town by town by town, uh, tailoring. Uh, and when I think about health, I don't think about a hospital. I think about am I healthy? Is my family healthy? What are the things that make up good health? There's this beautiful saying or the beautiful definition of health by Aboriginal Australia talks about the whole, the whole of the person, the whole of the being. And I've, you know, as a non-Indigenous Australian, I've learned a lot about that. I'm still trying to learn a lot about it, but there's something in that for me that we can all learn from. But in the health system, what happens is quite often those that work in health are trained to think of the health system as their GP practice. I work in the GP practice or I work in the hospital. But actually when you're not a health worker and I'm not a health worker, you stand back and you've got the whole thing. 
New South Wales Department of Education employs psychologists for kids. That's health. Aged care, that's health. Disability, health. And it's just all of this stuff that you wrap it up as one. And I think for a community, it's really important to see that because the health system is funded to do certain things, not to do the things on the edge. And so, but the community gets to say, no, no, health for us means this. And that's really important in that. So these are the sorts of things I think a lot about and our friends and colleagues who work in this space around challenging the system, trying to create solutions. These are the sorts of stuff that we try to apply evidence to because that's the other part to this. Everyone's got an idea, no idea is a bad idea, but more than likely it has or something similar that's been trialled elsewhere and the idea of drawing in best practice, drawing in knowledge, bringing the best of world health to your town is really important to this sort of stuff or else you're probably going to fall into pitfalls and traps. This is resonating in policy land because you see the federal government doing innovative models of care where you've seen collaborative care, which were trials across New South Wales, the state government's funding a podcast series like this to enhance communities' access. So what are we seeing from the policy world, federal and state, that will help us or give us hope that actually community can play a role in health access? So I've definitely seen a change in the last three to four years. I don't know if it was COVID or whether it was the drought in New South Wales that started to trigger stuff. I mean, I remember being uh, probably November 2019 this was before COVID, we were at breaking point in New South Wales with drought. Like I had a staff member who rang me from a visit to a town in tears. I asked her to pull over on the side of the road and let it out and for about 15 minutes, most of it quite got shivers on my back to then. Um, I remember it so clearly. So we're, we're, we're in big, it was big, big strife, right? And I think what has happened at the policy level, and this, is, this includes members of parliament, includes senior people of our departments in New South Wales and also, I'm sure, federally, that yes, we need structure and we need system because that, that brings reliability, it brings confidence, but we also need to get to the people when they need it. You think back to the fires and you know, the stuff around the south coast in New South Wales, Mallacoota in Victoria, you know, that, that, was, that was pretty <laughs> distressing stuff. And I think what the system's working out is trust we got to build a good structure but we also need to have the flexibility to get into community quickly and i think that's what we're seeing so i applaud all of this sort of work the idea of just freeing up a little bit of money to get into community direct to community we do know that in the federal budget this year that there's been more money announced so all of the communities around the country should be starting to prepare to put funding in submissions in for this i think because uh, if you don't ask you don't get and it gets you and your community proactively engaged in the system where in the past quite often our local governments and community leaders have put at arm's length from this but this is the chance to actively get in uh, pitch advocate lobby participate and do you think part of that is being driven with the realization at a state and federal level uh, that there isn't a cookie cutter approach to health each community is very different the needs of each community are very different. So therefore, we'll have to rely on community to help us develop uh, programs around the individual needs of those regions and towns and areas. Okay. So I probably won't, I've got to, I mean, I'm, I actually don't need to be careful. I'll just tell you what I think, <laughs> but you know, there's things that play out through this. I may not make a lot of friends. And again, this is my perception. Cookie cutter is the devil, but you need framework. So I love frameworks. So give me something that I can work off a framework, but let me tailor and adapt to local area. For me, cookie cutter, my definition of cookie cutter is what I build over in place A, I can deliver in place B. And it's going to be the same. We don't care what you say. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a, there's a place for that. But if you think about a really big, a, you know, billion dollar system, 
it wants to do cookie cutter. It, it has to. Like you just, you can't. And so people like me are probably pesky because we come and oh, we want to change this, we want to change this. I reckon 10 or 15 years ago, I was probably ignorant. Uh, I was probably a bit cowboyish, like, no, I'll do this stuff. What I think I've made with age is start to realise, actually, give me a framework that I can replicate, which has got evidence, which we know is probably going to work, and then let me tweak the local thing. So I've sort of probably finding middle ground now. Uh, but then again, don't forget, I've never worked in a hospital. Like I've spent a lot of time in hospitals talking to people who do. So what we can't do is not have empathy, not understand the needs of people who've got very significant responsibilities in terms of running the system. Because if you don't have that structure, you don't have those policies in place, the system will collapse. And that's worse. That's a worse outcome. So I think what I've learned through this is we've got to listen to everybody. We've got to understand the good. We've got to understand where it's a bit ugly, but also just at the, you know, back in the community, just give it a chance to be owned locally. So for mayors listening to this right now, hearing you speak, what sort of advice can you give them in starting this journey? Because what we see in communities across Australia is that local governments want to have their communities as great places to live, to be economically viable, and health is a very big component of making that happen. Yet they've got no levers. Like there's no local government has nothing to do with the delivery of health in any major way. <laughs> so what would you say to them right now? I think local government and local communities underestimate the strengths they've got with this. But it's also got to be done with a level of care and understanding of the system. I've met a few mayors over the last probably 15 years or so, or councillors and sort of senior staff of council, Rotary Club, all that sort of stuff, who actually are prepared to sit and ask the questions and get to learn it. So it takes about a year, I reckon. I mean, I'm still learning in this job now, but just sitting, immersing, reading, understanding, visiting, trying to get it, rather than just throw darts at things, actually that's what you've got to do first is just get to understand this thing. Because, I mean, we all have a laugh, you know, health build on acronyms, you know, every... All, these, all the lingo, it's, it's so complicated. So you just immerse yourself and you start to learn. The other thing I think people need to do is health, no matter what we've just said about cookie cutter and the billion-dollar business model, all that sort of stuff, health locally is built on people. So you can't people-proof health. And people get appointed in big organisations to work in town. So getting to know those people, understand what makes them tick, welcoming them in, giving them the chance to also see what the how the town works and all that sort of stuff is very, very important. So at the moment, all I'm talking about is in, this is this idea of engaging, just participating, engaging, building something. There's this wonderful saying, in again, in Aboriginal health that I've come to hear and learn, and that is the idea of we move at the pace of trust. So, I mean, what if, what, it's just incredible, so, so, so deep and powerful, that sort of stuff. And that's what it is because at the end of the day, all me, others, we come and go and – the people who don't come and go are the people and the families that live in communities for 30, 40, 50, 100 years. And so, again, just the idea of bringing people in, not seeing them as foreigners or aliens when they come into your community, see them as, see them as friends. Because whether it's one year, three years, 10 years or 15 years, their contribution will help those towns thrive. I don't think you can have a thriving rural town without having a great health system locally, school, all that sort of stuff. And I talk a lot to the mayors and different communities about this and they're sort of like this throw. You've got to, to build a great town, what do you need? But also to build a great health system, what do you need? And it's this sort of dual thing that plays out a lot for people. So for me, it's probably to wrap that up, it's just about 
um, commit to it and go on that journey. So, Richard, what are the biggest issues you see communities facing for the mayors and for the local business leaders that are listening to this podcast who are wanting to contribute and do something for their community around health access? What are the big issues they're facing? So this comes up heaps and you run the risk here of just saying one or two things and nothing's going to fix the whole thing. But the way that I try to frame my answers to this is probably break it up by a workforce type and then some of the bits about how the health system works. So when we get asked what's the biggest issue at Rural Doctors Network, what we say is the biggest challenge to the health system for remote and rural New South Wales at the moment is a very specific cohort of health professional. And that's what we call the GP proceduralist. You know, in different conversations we've talked about, just get us a doctor, but understand the type of doctor. The GP proceduralist for me is the super doc. They're the one who's been trained as a general practitioner and then have made choice to be trained in specialist skills. And they're incredible. I mean, they're the people I just think we just got to say thank you to and champion the whole time. So when you say specialist skills, that could be a range of different skills? Yeah, yeah. So these are things like, I mentioned different times I've spoken to people in, and in public, the notion that remote health is different to rural health and different to regional health. Think about Tamworth, Wagga Wagga, the like. They're big hospitals. Like they're, 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 sure, there's, there's issues, but they're big. The GP proceduralist is the person who works in the smaller and remote towns who runs the GP practice but also runs up the hill to the hospital to deliver the baby or has to run up the hill to do when there's a car accident. So they also are on their own, predominantly on their own, and they've been trained to be able to keep the small hospital open. And they've also been, you know, whether through anaesthetic, surgery, obstetrics and the rest, plus do the GP practice. These people are gold. And we need to see them as national heroes, personally. They're like the greatest asset we have when you start to think about rural health. And that's why I keep talking about how the fact remote and rural is different to regional. So personally, I think that really needs to get called out. What are we doing as a country to support those people? If we believe that health services should be provided face-to-face in remote and rural communities, the GP procedures is key. And there are things happening about that. But in New South Wales, 10 years ago, there were over 850 of these GP procedures. Today, we're down under 170, and 60% of those are over the age of 55, and 60% of them are going to retire in the next five years. The system is about to break. So that's the big doom thing. Heaps of work going into this, but if we don't get our head around that, even though I've said at other times a doctor isn't always the first option, if you don't have these people, we're stuffed. And uh, that's the big rah-rah comment, but I think that's what we're trying to work through. So that's that. The other thing that comes up is around viability. So, I mean, I'm not without playing all the politics around Medicare and all the rest, at the end of the day, these are small businesses. Predominantly in our rural communities, we're talking about small businesses. They're the same as the baker. They're the same as the tie guy. Like this is what's going on and our GPs cannot sustain their business. It isn't working. So there's a viability issue now and when you start to think about financial viability, you also start to think about health, their health, their well-being. Why stay? Why should I have my kids going to school if I'm almost on the breadline? I've met doctors who are currently doing second jobs in their community to be able to pay the food bill. Like it's just what's going on. And so these are the things to be thinking about as, as leaders in towns. How do I help these very important people not just sustain themselves, but obviously grow and thrive professionally and personally. Another thing that's coming up at the moment, and this is very important to keep an eye on for communities, it relates to the notion of competition. So out of post-COVID world, we've got this situation where money's tight, you know, with interest rates, it's like it's a nightmare. And we're probably going to go through it for another year to two years. And so on top of that idea about the viability of the practices, we've also got this idea of 
tightening of the federal and state budgets. Now, what that's leading to is what I call competition in health. Now, sometimes competition's great, but when you're already in a market that's full of crisis, why do we make it harder for those that are already there to stay there? And that's what's happening. So whether it's through systems and funding models and all that sort of stuff. I think the thing I'm probably most concerned though about this competition piece, it's actually the type of behaviour that it drives. Now, it's easy for me, not easy, but as a CEO or a mayor or general manager of a council, you know, you do all this leadership training, emotional health, all that sort of stuff. But when the push comes to shove, if you've got to pay staff and your business is going to fold, you can't help but constrict into this thing, I've got to survive. And that survival behaviour leads to a whole host of things that I'm seeing in community at the moment that play on itself. And I don't think it's always that pleasant. And I think what we need to try to do as a group, and, and I'm just as equally as part of this, is that we need to think through how do, you, how do you engender that thing of social leadership, going beyond just managing the company. If you're on a board or you're on the council or you're a senior staff member, we've got to do more to help bring back that vitality, that idea of being it together, not just to survive. And I see that playing out everywhere. So it's whether or not you know, a city-based charity takes over an NGO, what's the first job to go? The administrator, not the clinician. It's the administrator in the small town, the person who does the books. This is hugely worrying because you rip the guts out of the professional skills within a town. Through our work, we know that there are hundreds of examples where providers from out of town want to come in and do good. So that's good, nice, but come in to do good. But they might have raised funds or got a contract that allows them to have, for example, a 0.3 FTE speech pathologist. Well, good luck trying to appoint three FTE speech pathologists into remote New South Wales. Who, who can do that? But what makes it worse is that you might have three charities all got 0.3 FTE funding for speech pathologists. At the moment, we we're aware of close to 50 examples of this, in allied health particularly, where you've got these multiple appointments. You've got people trying to raise funds back in the city for against the city folk, but it's not landing. You can't appoint anyone because they're not being brave enough or courageous enough to actually come together and actually pool the money. Why? Because they're trying to survive. The organisations need to be seen to be banging their drum and celebrating themselves. And what we what I've got to try and do, and we've got some examples where it's worked, is actually we celebrate the collective. Put the money in the pool and we all get celebrated. And I think that's the sort of stuff that the mayor should do. Demand this. Demand it. Don't just sit there and say, thank goodness I've got someone. Or thank goodness they found 60 grand to put on a point three, which you're never going to get. Demand accountability back to their own communities. Expect it and sometimes say, we don't want you. Mm. So, sorry, there's a bit of a high horse. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Got worked up then. <laughs> I see a lot of it though. I guess that's the thing as a statewide organisation. I love driving through. I love seeing people. I love all the communities. And you just see this time and time again. So back to the cookie cutter idea. Like, that's the cookie cutter as well. That's what's happening everywhere. It's the same everywhere. And we've got to do more to break it. So is this this idea of, and it is a buzzword, this collaboration. You see it around multidisciplinary approach. Is this different to what what you're talking about or is it sort of goes hand in hand with this? So it's like the word partnership. In health, there's great words, you know, partnership, collaboration, all this sort of stuff. I've tried to stay away from the word partnership a little bit, not because I don't believe in partnership, because it just got used so often. And what I've actually come to see in health, I mean, I'm being pretty, I mean, this is being pretty frank, what I've kind of seen in health is quite often when the word partnership used, it's actually about I'm going to control you. So we do a document, we sign a document, thank goodness we've got a contract, we've got an agreement, and then it becomes a negotiation about what more I can do and what more money I can get. 
it's not, it's not actually a working partnership for an end result for community. It's about, oh, thank gosh, I've got something I can report. So we're trying not to use the word partnership as a bit of an agitator around this notion. And then out of the blue, collaboration pops up. And I think it's a nicer word. I think it's a more authentic word, but it is getting used a lot. But that's okay because it's, I've actually seen a different style of work. There's a different energy around that word at the moment, and I think that should be encouraged and celebrated, so that's okay. But there'll come a time when that gets tired, I think I'd imagine. That idea of who's at the centre. We hear a lot about patient-centric care, you know, having the patient at the centre. Well, we've all been to hospital. I don't think I've ever felt the centre too much. I mean, you do sometimes, yeah. and you really say thank you. You're really thankful for that. You know, like you just think, thank you. But am I always at the centre? I don't know. And I think that's the same for community. So you've got all these organisations out there, including our own. We're busy, busy. We're doing good work. You know, we're charging around. But actually, what are we really contributing to in terms of community? And that just takes me back to the idea of the community demanding an accountability back to them. If you're going to be in our community, you have to contribute. You have to play the long game with us. Don't come in and rip the guts out of us. So, Richard, I just want to end on a question for you. We see the word crisis used a lot in the media. There's a lot of negative stories and all that, but there's so many great stories that you must see on a day-to-day basis uh, you're passionate about community and putting community at the centre, so you must have hope for how we can actually contribute and make a better life for our communities around health. Excellent. So thank you for going there and to finish. It's so easy in this world and the health discussion to throw a dart at this thing, but actually that's not always helpful. Uh, it's important to call out where improvement can be, but I'm just so pleased you asked that to finish because what we've got to do is actually recognise that if we don't turn this to the positive story, we will fix nothing. There's, there's everything in business, in the world, there's things have got to be changed and improved. We've got to be honest. We've got to be mature. We've got to be professional. We can make this thing great. And one of the problems is that the rural health becomes a deficit story. It sells a newspaper. There's been a death here and a death there. There's never a good, bad patient story. But actually what happens is this is perennial beating up of the system. It's unfair and it's unhelpful. So for me, one of the things that I love the idea around this topic is the fact that rural is not the deficit story. In fact, what I think I've come to see, it isn't this word resilient. I mean, goodness me, we've heard so much of that. We don't want to be talking about, and people don't want to be talking about being resilient. What we're saying is rural Australia, there is an underpinning positivity. There's a strength in rural Australia. There's a strength in rural people and they've got it and they can look after this themselves and we just need to get out of the way. Give them what they need, equip them, and things work. The bit about the workforce is fascinating for me because what's actually people say, oh, we can't, you know, how are we going to recruit the workforce? In terms of the GP population, there are about two to two and a half thousand GPs working in rural New South Wales alone, you know, times that out across the country. Sure, it's tough. But we actually don't need 5,000 rural GPs. We need 500, 50 to 500 I mean, I'll go to have dinner with them in Sydney and drive them out there if we need to. It's achievable. This thing's achievable. People want to do good jobs. It's not always about money all the time. They want to be able to thrive professionally. They want to be able to thrive personally. Some people like salt water. Some people like fresh water. Some people like Thai. Some people like Chinese. Some people like snow. Some people like brown dirt. Some people like black dirt. New South Wales, rural Australia has it all. We've just got to make sure we craft the story to attract and retain those people to come. And when they land, look after them, celebrate them, thank them, and make them the best that they can be. Over the last 25 years, the organisation I now work for has participated in bringing in to rural New South Wales over half of the GP population. 
And I think for me the thing that I love to finish this, this conversation about the positivity piece on, those 1,500 GPs have come from 60 different countries, 60 different countries, and that includes Australia. So if you think about the contribution of our health professions, not just to communities but to Australia's future, we've got an amazing story to tell. The system's great. We want it to be better. We want it to improve. But we together are responsible for this. I've got to the age now where I look back and go, far out, we're going to create the legacy. It's us now that are going to create the legacy that our kids and our grandkids live through. I can't sit on the grandstand anymore. We've got to get in. This is us. This is our time. We've got to make it better. It's a great way to end it. Richard, thank you very much. Thanks, Jeremy. It's been fun. This podcast is produced by Health Pro Media and funded by the New South Wales Government. You can find out more information or let us know about topics you would like to cover by going to our website at communitysolutionshub.com. In the meantime, please like, follow and share. Until next time, thanks for listening. The information provided in this podcast is of a general educational nature only. The views expressed are that of the presenters and not of the New South Wales Government or the New South Wales Rural Doctors Network.